You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please take your copy of the Scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 3. Excuse me, Matthew chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 3 through 5. Matthew chapter 5. March Madness, as you're... uh, Turning, I want to share this with you. March Madness is one of my favorite times of year. Now, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, March Madness refers to the tournament at the end of the college basketball season where now 68 teams battle it out in a single elimination tournament. Every year it's incredibly exciting and dramatic. Every year there is a school that makes a run and no one expected it. If you love sports... March Madness is about as good as it gets. In April of of 2019, the University of Virginia Cavaliers were crowned tournament champions. They are coached by a man named Tony Bennett. Now, again, if you follow college basketball at all, you know who Tony Bennett is, and you know that, that he's an excellent coach, and he's a very committed believer. College sports headlines are often dominated with stories of corruption and cheating. And too many times, coaches are at the center of these scandals. In a world of big-time money and big-time egos, Coach Bennett is a breath of fresh air. And let me illustrate why. After Virginia won the national championship, while they were still celebrating in the locker room, here's what Coach Bennett said to his team. Quote, Promise me, promise me you will remain humble and thankful for this. Don't let this change you. It doesn't have to. Friends, as strange as it may sound for a high-profile college coach to say something like that, it really shouldn't be a surprise. In fact, here are the five pillars of Coach Bennett's program. Humility, passion, Unity, servanthood, and thankfulness. Bennett readily admits that these five pillars are taken directly from the scriptures. Over the last couple of weeks, as, I, as I've read and reread different interviews with Coach Bennett's players and fellow coaches, all of them said the same thing. He doesn't just talk about these five pillars, he lives them out. Humility, passion, unity, servanthood, and thankfulness. Perhaps the greatest example of Coach Bennett's authenticity was what happened after Virginia won the national championship and the university rewarded Bennett with a raise. To everyone's surprise, Bennett actually turned the raise down, saying simply, I have more than I need. I'm blessed beyond what I deserve. Friends, when I think about the example of someone like Tony Bennett and I try to pinpoint why he sticks out so clearly as a bit of an oddity, here's what I conclude. It's not that he claims to be a follower of Jesus. Many claim this. It's that Tony Bennett's life is undeniably counter-cultural, not because of what he says, but because of what he does. He doesn't simply talk about humility. His life is marked by authentically humble actions, and that's weird. 
In our text this morning, as we begin looking at the Beatitudes, we will see a clear thread connecting verses 3 through 5. True followers, here it is, true followers of Jesus have been sovereignly and gloriously humbled and ought to be growing in humility. True followers of Jesus have been sovereignly and gloriously humbled and ought to be growing in humility. Look at the text with me. Matthew chapter 5. In fact, let's just back up to verse 1 so we get the setting again. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, speaking of Jesus, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Remember the setting for the sermon by Jesus. He is speaking primarily to those who have turned to him in repentance and faith. They believe he is the promised Messiah, the true king. They believe that he is the one sent by God to rescue a people from their sin and give them peace with God. So friends, I want you to picture this with me. The crowd gathers around Jesus and he begins to speak. While those listening have heard him speak before and they have believed what he has said, there's so much more they have to learn. They have so many unresolved questions. Not everything makes sense. Now please keep in mind what we established last week. In this sermon, Jesus is not laying out the way into the kingdom, but the way of the kingdom. He's explaining what many have called his upside-down kingdom. Jesus is going to outline how he defines the good life. But as we'll see, it's the exact opposite of what most people think. Most people don't define the good life using words like poor, mourn, meek, hungry, thirsty, pure, peaceful, persecuted, as Jesus defines it, the good life is marked by authentic humility. Let me give you three ways humility is highlighted. In the Sermon on the Mount, there are more to be sure, but here are three. The humble come to God empty-handed. The humble grieve over the reality of sin and the humble focus on the good of others. First, the humble come to God empty-handed. Look at verse three again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Does it mean someone must be materially poor? Does it mean that someone must lack any sort of confidence? That they live with a defeated and downtrodden countenance? Well, to answer this question, it will be helpful for us to go back to the Old Testament or, as some rightly call it, Jesus' Bible. We'll take a look at a few different texts. First, listen to Proverbs 16 and verse 19. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. 
In other words, the Bible teaches us that it's better to be associated with those who are materially poor but genuinely humble than it is to hang out with and be counted among those who get together and arrogantly celebrate and divvy up all the stuff they have more than any of them could ever need. Can you picture that? How, how different would it be relationally to hang out with humble people that have very little, but they're humble, rather than arrogant people who boast in the excess of possessions they have? You would leave one group with a greater sense of gratitude. You would leave the other group discouraged and discontent. Keep that in mind as we go to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 57, verse 15. Listen to this. This is what the text says. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Do you hear that? Let me read the second part of that verse again. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Who is it that experiences the blessing of God? Who does he associate with? The one who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. One more text from Isaiah, Isaiah 66, verse 2. Here's what the text says. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God created everything and takes pleasure in all the work of his hand. But what or who does he single out? Who does God look upon with loving approval? Or we might, to use the language of the Sermon on the Mount, say, who is truly blessed? He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at God's word. Now bring all of that back into the Sermon on the Mount. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? I love D.A. Carson's simple summary. Carson writes, poverty of spirit is the personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. It is the conscious confession of unworth before God. As such, it is the deepest form of repentance. Let me say that again. Poverty of spirit is the personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. It is the conscious confession of unworth before God. As such, it is the deepest form of repentance. The great hymn, Rock of Ages, captures what it means to be poor in spirit. Nothing in my hand I bring, 
Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Vile I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. The humble come to God empty-handed because that is quite simply the only way to come to God. If you're not coming empty-handed, then you don't understand who God is and you certainly don't understand who you are. Jesus can declare, declare, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven because if you've come to Christ in repentance and faith, then you have already experienced the sovereign hand of God granting you the grace to see your sin and your need for Christ. No one, no one becomes poor in spirit as an act of their own will. This is the work of God. And yet, friends, God continues. God continues to call his true disciples to an ongoing lifestyle marked by poverty of spirit. As you walk in humility, you will continually be blessed. Now let me make, let me make one thing clear. Poverty of spirit isn't self-loathing. Poverty of spirit isn't self-loathing. And on the, the other side of that, it isn't some kind of surfacy religiosity. No, what we're talking about here is an undeniable work of God's grace in the lives of redeemed sinners that produces authentic, Christ-like humility. And listen, if... If this congregation is marked by poverty of spirit, then it will have a profound effect on our relationships with each other, our service of each other, our engagement in our various communities, our giving to those in need. Brothers and sisters, how could it not? Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if Redeemer Bible Church became known for its Poverty of spirit. It's profound humility. Do you know anyone from Redeemer? Have you ever run into someone from Redeemer? Yes, yeah, I have. They're so humble. They're so gracious. First, the humble come to God empty-handed. This is how we come, and this is how we remain in his presence, empty-handed. Second, the humble grieve over the reality of sin. Look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. As you read the word mourn, some of you may be tempted like I was to think of mourning in a very particular way. Usually, uh, when I think of mourning, my mind formulates this picture of someone who has experienced great pain and they just can't snap out of it. This, right, this person is mourning. In other words, I tend to think of mourning as very similar to a kind of, a kind of depression, discouragement, a dark cloud hovering A loved one dies or a child is diagnosed with a terminal illness. Something tragic happens and and then deep mourning ensues. 
If you're thinking about mourning like that, and that's, that's an appropriate way to, to think about mourning, but if you're thinking about mourning like that, let me, let me try to clarify what I believe Jesus has in mind here. It's something a little bit different. Several commentators suggest that, that mourning here can be understood as the emotional counterpart to poverty of spirit. There's a distinctly spiritual aspect to this morning. So as we seek to apply Jesus' words in verse 4, we might ask questions like this. Do we mourn over our sin? Do we feel something? Sorrow? Do we mourn over our sin? Are we convicted and bothered by spiritual failures? Are, are we quick to repent, to, to mourn over our sin? Or is there a callousness or, or simply an intellectual assent that something is wrong? I, I shouldn't have done that, which is a kind of hardness towards sin. Instead of sensitivity and sorrow over sin, do we tend to overlook or dismiss it or rationalize it away? What I love about Jesus' words in verse 4 is that they, they highlight both the seriousness of sin and the certainty of grace. If you are one who has experienced the work of God's Spirit, you have been brought low by the reality of your sin and you've turned to Christ in faith. But if that's happened, then you know you know that sin is serious, but you also know that grace is certain. You know what it is to be comforted. So you, you, you've felt sorrow. You've mourned, but you've also experienced comfort. This is what it is to come to Christ in faith. Do you see how these two ideas work together? You'll never know the profound sweetness of God's abundant mercy until you see yourself as someone in need of mercy. Again, it is God's work of grace that exposes our sin. It exposes our need for Jesus. And then it leads us to the throne of grace where we find everlasting comfort. So here's, here's what Jesus is saying. Brothers and sisters, Blessed are you if you've been given eyes to see the seriousness and devastation of sin because that is precisely what led you to cry out to God for comfort. And guess what? When you needed comfort, God supplied it. When you needed comfort, God supplied it. And even more, even more, God's fountain of merciful comfort for mourning sinners will never run dry. So Jesus is telling those gathered before him. Now, I would say this is the good life. Right? This is the good life. The good life isn't the one who ignores the reality of sin. The good life isn't the life of self-indulgence and hedonism. 
The good life isn't living according to your own desires and personal pursuit of happiness. The good life is the one marked by mourning over the seriousness of sin and then running into the infinitely loving and eternally comforting arms of Jesus. That's the good life. That's the good life. So first, we we saw that the humble come to God empty-handed. Second, the humble grieve over the reality of sin and then bask and rest in the comfort that Christ supplies. Finally, finally, the humble focus on the good of others. Look at verse five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If I had to guess, I would guess that meekness is an idea that most of us don't often think about. It's just not a character trait that's celebrated these days. In fact, I can't remember ever seeing a single political ad touting the meekness of the candidate, right? Harold Smith, meek and mild, gentle and lowly. That would not play very well, would it? I guarantee you that if you're watching a football game today, you will not hear a single player or coach commended for their evident meekness. I think it's safe to say that most people equate meekness with weakness. That if a person is meek, he or she is not determined, they're not strong, they're not motivated, they're just kind of meek. Well, as you might have guessed, these popular ideas miss what biblical meekness is all about. They miss it terribly. Here's one definition of biblical meekness. It's a controlled desire to see others' interests advance ahead of one's own. It's a controlled desire to see others' interests advance ahead of one's own. In other words, it would be great for politicians to be meek. It would be great for coaches and players to exhibit meekness. Now, perhaps the best way for us to wrap our heads around this idea is to see what meekness looks like in living color. And to do this, we really only need to look one place. Later in Matthew's gospel, listen to the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Literally, I am meek. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ, in his meekness, willingly sacrificed himself for the good of others. He declared here, I will take your burdens, you rest. The implications of what Jesus says about himself in Matthew 11 are glorious. 
I want to close by spending just a few minutes meditating on Jesus' words in Matthew 11 as a way of explaining Jesus' words in Matthew 5. This past year, Crossway published a remarkable book by Dane Ortland simply called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. If you have not read it, you should without delay. Listen to how Ortland's explanation of Jesus' claim that he is gentle and lowly. Listen, listen to how he explains it, and then I want you to allow this to shape the way you think about his words in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what Ortland writes. Meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger-happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. And lowly. The meaning of the word lowly overlaps with that of gentle, together communicating a single reality about Jesus' heart. The point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites, no hoops to jump through. The minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply Open yourself up to him. It is all he needs. Indeed, it is the only thing he works with. Verse 28 of Matthew 11 tells us explicitly who qualifies for fellowship with Jesus. All who labor and are heavy laden. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment is required. He says, I will give you rest. His rest is gift, not transaction. Whether you are actively working hard to crowbar your life into smoothness, labor, or passively finding yourself weighed down by something outside your control, heavy laden, Jesus Christ's desire that you find rest, that you come in out of the storm, outstrips even your own desire. Gentle and lowly. This, according to his own testimony, is Christ's very heart. This is who he is. Tender, open, welcoming, accommodating, understanding, willing. If we are asked to say only one thing about who Jesus is, we would be honoring Jesus' own teaching if our answer is gentle and lowly. If Jesus hosted his own personal website, the most prominent line of the About Me drop-down menu would read, gentle and lowly in heart. Brothers and sisters, blessed are the meek, 
Blessed are those who have received unmerited love and undeserved grace from the one who is gentle and lowly. It is only because of God's sovereign and gracious work in us that we could ever be described as meek. And it's only as we daily experience the ongoing benefits of sweet communion with our gentle and lowly Lord that we will be able to extend this most wonderful gift to others. The more time you spend with the one who is perfectly gentle and perfectly lowly, the more you will be influenced by him. Into a world dominated by greed and the illicit hunger for more power, into a culture that celebrates temporal achievement no matter what the cost, into a society that rewards bullies and honors manipulation and dishonesty, into this kind of world, a gentle and lowly king, a truly humble king has established an upside-down kingdom, a kingdom made up of unimpressive but authentically humble people. those the good king has rescued from their sin. And now, now this is the call of the king to his people. Don't be deceived. Don't get sidetracked. Don't embrace the lies. The way of blessing, the good life, is exactly what Jesus said it was. So believe this. Believe this, even though everything in the world says that's not the blessed life, that's not the good life, Jesus says, it sure is. So brothers and sisters, walk in this way with great joy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's pray.